Section 1 of A Bunch of Keys, Where They Were Found and What They Might Have Unlocked, a Christmas book edited by Tom Hood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Edwards. The Bunch of Keys, The Ring, by Thomas W. Robertson. Chapter 1. Concerning a Big Black Box in a Spare Bedroom. Suppose, Bob, we force the lock. I should perhaps mention, for the instruction and amusement of the reader, but, as I never wrote a book before and am aged fourteen, errors must be excused, that Bob, although my brother, was two years younger, that is, two years younger than I. We presented a marked contrast, we two brothers. I was fond of reading, and even at the early age of eight had composed verses. Bob, although good-natured, was not a clever scholar, but he was a first-rate fighter, jumper, climber, and tumbler. We got on very well, and were always together, but as a companion from an intellectual point of view, Bob was nowhere. We lived with our father in an old-fashioned rookery of an house, a mile away from any other, in the Midland Counties. Our mother had died when Bob was a baby. Father had been a disappointed man. He ought to have had a large fortune, but somehow or other didn't get it, in consequence of chancery. So he took our house, which had a few acres of ground attached to it, grass and arable, and went up to London every now and then to look after his law business. We had a housekeeper, old Martha, who looked after us, and a servant called Jane, who looked after Martha. And she was a very curious person, was that Jane. Why, once she tried to drown herself in the beck because her sweetheart had proved false to her and married somebody else. And yet, Jane was a very plain girl, with a nose like a piece of bottle India rubber. She could hardly read and couldn't write at all. But as I was saying, we lived in this old-fashioned rookery and went every day a mile across the fields to the Reverend Mr. Dewhurst's to school. It wasn't a regular school, the Reverend Dewhurst's, but he used to teach us. He was curate to the church at Thorpecroft, was the Reverend Dewhurst, and a great friend of father's, and Mrs. Dewhurst was a very nice woman, and their daughter Amy was a very nice girl. No imagination, but a very nice girl for all that. I remember the gentleman who owned the box coming to stop a week with father. I remember him particularly well, though I was only six years old. I have a wonderful memory, because the end of his nose was like a sponge, a red sponge. He was a tall man and very pale, and wore a wig, and had a voice so deep and so musical that it was beautiful to listen to it. While he was stopping with us, the Reverend Dewhurst used to come over to supper with Father almost every evening. The three of them had been schoolfellows when boys, rugbyans, and they used to sit up over their whiskey and water till early in the morning, at least so I have heard Martha say. And I remember myself hearing Father tell Mrs. Dewhurst, when she complained of the Reverend Dewhurst's hours, that he, the tall, pale gentleman, was the only man who understood the art of reciting poetry as it ought to be recited. Well, it was he, the stranger, who brought the box with him, and it was placed where he slept in our spare bedroom. It was a very big black box, and he had no other luggage. One morning I was sent off to the Reverend Dewhurst in a jiffy, and I stopped with Mrs. Dewhurst and Amy for a week. I have been told since that I was sent to be out of the way, for that the tall, pale gentleman 
not coming down to breakfast at the usual time, my father went up to his room to call him and found him dead in his bed. He was buried at Thorpecroft Churchyard, and the Reverend Dewhurst read the burial service over him. I was sent back home, and the big black box had never been moved from our spare bedroom, nor had the broad strap round it ever been unbuckled. Years rolled by, and I merged from childhood into youth. I learned rapidly, the Reverend Dewhurst said too rapidly, and encouraged by my brother Bob's approval and the bright eyes of Amy, I looked forward to a glorious career. I was intensely fond of reading, and as Mrs. Dewhurst had all the new novels sent to her every month in a green box from the library, I had my fill of romance, sentiment, and adventure. Books formed my mind. While but youthful, I was in intellect a man. Even at what some persons would consider the early age of eleven, I had formed an attachment for Ms. Dewhurst, my Amy, a love which I feel will last my life. It was so pleasant to go out mushrooming together on the common with a book, to sit beside a streamlet beneath the bending branches of a willow, looking over the same page while Bob gathered the mushrooms, for poor Bob had no sentiment. Give him his ditch and his bird's nest, and he cared for nothing else. Amy Dewhurst, what a name for a poet's bride. But the fatal time for parting came. The knell was tolled. The command was given. The fiat went forth. Amy was to go to boarding school. I will not attempt to describe my grief, or how poor dear Bob endeavored to console me with the pineapple rock which he that day purchased at Thorpe Crop Feast. Dear, stupid old Bob, how could he understand my feelings? I went to the feast the next day to banish my regret, and I tried to obtain a temporary distraction from a blighted heart by visiting all the shows. We, Bob and I, saw the Leicestershire giant, the pink-eyed albino lady with the long white hair, the boa constrictor and the armadillo, the Battle of Navarino, and the Siege of Seringapatam, an Indian chieftain fresh from his native wilds, and a small circus with some capital tumbling by the professor's Diavolini. I thought the circus performance would have driven Bob mad. He did nothing but tumble and stand on the bare back of our old pony for days after. I think the showman took a deal of money, for I saw the Indian chieftain quaffing firewater at the four alls with his proprietor and tamer. It was about this time, the sad time of Amy's departure, that I began thinking about the big black box in the spare bedroom. I don't know why I connected these two apparently opposing facts, but I did, and I wondered what was inside the box. I asked Martha, but she said she didn't know, nor was she conscious of the existence of a key. This was in the beginning of December. My father had gone up to the Swampham Station, six miles from our house, and started for London to look after his law business. I remember he said before he went that this time he hoped to bring back news one way or the other. The idea of the contents of the box haunted me. In fact, it divided my mind with thoughts of my Amy. I held long counsels with Bob, who always agreed with me in everything, but made no suggestions from himself. It was in the tool house in the garden, and he was standing on his head when I said to him the words with which I commenced the story. Suppose, Bob, we force the lock. Suppose we do, said Bob, from his inverted position on the floor. Father has gone to London, I remarked. Yes, answered Bob, walking on his hands through the door into the garden. Then there is Martha. Blow, Martha, said Bob, doing handsprings right along the gravel path. 
Bob, I shouted after him. Yes, he replied on his head again and clapping his feet together. If without any personal inconvenience you could manage to stand upon your feet like a Christian, we might discuss this subject like intellectual beings. Bob's body went down full length on the gravel with a whack, and then he threw himself upon his feet after the manner of Signor Antonio Diavolini. Suppose we force the lock and see what's inside? That follows as a matter of course. Bob crowed like a cock, fluttered his elbows, and said, Martha! I grasped his arm and whispered in his ear, Tonight, when she is asleep, the household wrapped in slumber? Right you are, he interrupted, and immediately threw handsprings in the direction of the tool house. He was enough to provoke a saint. Where are you going? I shouted. Chisel, he replied, and vanished from my sight. End of section one.